0: Thank you, Bob. And good evening, everybody. Tonight, we're going to discuss part two of Doris Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. This bestseller, published in 2005, incurred a resurgence in sales when President-elect Obama was reported to have been studying it as a basis for the selection of his own cabinet. Doris Goodwin... Was a White House fellow and personal assistant to Lyndon Johnson and taught government at Harvard for 10 years. She is the author of several best selling books on the presidency, such as Lyndon Johnson, The American Dream, uh, The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, and the Pulitzer Prize winning No Ordinary Times Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, The American Home Front During World War II. Part one. Of Team of Rivals was a multiple biography of the four rivals, as well as a casebook on how Lincoln n- engineered his nomination and election to become President of the United States. Part 2, Chapter 12, begins on the eve of Lincoln's inauguration as the country is descending into civil war. While diaries and letters provide a fascinating picture of wartime Washington and the personal lives of the rivals and their families. The main focus of the book is how Lincoln recruited and retained the highly competent but politically dangerous rivals he so desperately needed to manage the government. An editorial review from the Washington Post, which you can find on Amazon, states that the cabinet was never... Mentioned in the Constitution The cabinet developed as a Consul of State with Washington's Appointment of such Illuminaries as Jefferson, Hamilton And Knox The criteria for their appointment varied From uh, John Quincy Adams Who was so impartial He appointed his enemies To Andrew Jackson Who only appointed his cronies Because Lincoln's three predecessors Millard Fillmore Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan were so weak, the cabinet gradually began to take over the presidency, and it was no wonder that the three rivals thought they could run the government from the cabinet with a backwoods lawyer as a puppet. To avoid duplicating material from last month, I have taken the latter part of two NPR interviews and... Combine them with comments from two academics who disagree with the author.
1: I'm Terry Gross. This week, in anticipation of the conventions, we're looking back in time and featuring interviews about presidential history and politics. We expect newly elected presidents to assemble cabinets that reflect the president's positions. Abraham Lincoln took a different approach. He brought into his cabinet three powerful men who had politically opposed him. How and why he did it is the subject of the book, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln, by the Pulitzer Prize-winning presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. Lincoln appointed Seward Secretary of State, Chase Secretary of the Treasury, and Bates Attorney General. I spoke with Doris Kearns Goodwin about Lincoln in 2005. Your book is called Team of Rivals, and it it focuses on cabinet members who were his rivals, who who actually wanted the the nomination for for president from the Republican Party. Um, Why would he choose his rivals uh, to,
2: to be in his cabinet? I mean, it seemed at the time an unprecedented act because people hadn't done that in previous years. And these men were not only his rivals, but they were so much better known than he was. Seward had been the governor and senator from New York, and he thought when he was made secretary of state that he would actually run the show and Lincoln would be just simply some sort of puppet. But in fact, Seward and he ended up becoming great friends. I think Lincoln had an internal confidence that even though these men thought they should have been president, similarly Chase of Ohio thought he should have been president, Bates of Missouri, an elder statesman, Stanton, who eventually became secretary of war, had humiliated Lincoln once when they were young lawyers together, but he was able to put those past rivalries beside him, knowing that if these guys do a good job, then it will only be down to the interest of the country and obviously to his own interest as well. And it meant that he had to have much more than they realized, a sense, I
1: think I can handle these guys, I can master them. And he did. What do you think Lincoln did to bring together this cabinet of rivals?
2: Well, what he had going for him, which I think is so unusual in political life, is that he had a set of emotional strengths that today we might call emotional intelligence. So when all sorts of rivalries sprung up with these guys, and when they got hurt with one another, when they would call each other names, I mean... If we ever heard what they were calling each other then in today's parlance, liar, traitor, thief, I mean, and these things are being said in cabinet meetings, but he was somehow able to be in the center of that storm. When one of their feelings would be hurt, he'd be able to write a letter saying, if if I hurt you in any way, I did not mean to do so. Forgive me for things that I might do hastily. When he was upset with somebody, he would write what he called a hot letter, where he would write it all down, and then he would put it aside until his emotions cooled down and then write, never sent, never signed. And there was a sense about him where he was just um, kind and sensitive to them. If one of them was feeling he was spending too much time with another one, he would call that one aside and give him a special time to walk together or to go on a carriage ride together. So what he essentially did is what a great politician does which is to understand that human relationships are at the core of political success. And he somehow managed these people who, as I say, oftentimes hated one another, wouldn't even go into the same room with each other after a while. Stanton and Blair, his postmaster general and his secretary of war, said such terrible things about each other that Blair would never even go to the war department, even though he wanted to find out what was going on in the battles. It's almost unimaginable that he was able to keep this group together. But The success in keeping it together meant they also represented very different spectrums of political opinion, from very conservative to moderate to radical. And as long as he could keep that coalition together by keeping these people inside the tent, he was actually keeping those strands in the country together as well.
1: What was considered radical then?
2: Well, what was considered radical then was the idea that early on, you wanted to make emancipation the central focus of the war. And then later on, even after emancipation was made the focus, the radicals were more desiring to make the South pay for having gotten us into this war in their judgment and to wreak vengeance on them in order to be able to make sure that the old social structure would not come back in the South, whereas the conservatives were thinking that the Union was more important than emancipation. And also at the end of the war, they wanted to make sure that the South came back in a more gentle way, so that the Union would be preserved, even if it meant not punishing the leaders of the South who had been part of the Confederate cause.
1: And where did Lincoln stand?
2: Well, Lincoln stood in the middle on all these things. I mean, naturally in the middle, not because he was positioning himself in the middle. At the start of the war, he thought that the Union was the most important thing, and that emancipation, he wasn't sure, was something that he as president could do anything about, much as he might have wanted to because it was in the Constitution protected. So he thought the most important thing was to get a constitutional amendment to eradicate it, which he eventually did. But by the middle of the war, he came to understand that as president, he would have powers as commander-in-chief when a military necessity was at issue to be able to do something about the slaves. And the slaves were being used to help the South. They were digging the trenches. They were acting as cooks. They were protecting the home front when those soldiers went off to war and they just unbalanced, gave so much benefit to the Confederacy as opposed to the North, that he finally was able to decide legalistically that if he issued a cry for the emancipation as a military necessity, he would have that power to do it. Eventually, you'd need a constitutional amendment. So he moved toward what might have been the radical side. on On the issue of Reconstruction, I think even by the time of his death, however, he did not want to have vengeance against the South but he would have been worried about protecting the rights of blacks, which they were also worried about. So he probably would have been in the middle on that ground as well.
1: What did he do to hold together uh, this group of people within the cabinet who had such differing views about what the fate of the South should be and uh, what emancipation uh, should look like?
2: Well, I think partly what he did was to move step by step toward emancipation. You know, just as Franklin Roosevelt moved step by step toward getting us more involved in World War II, even before Pearl Harbor, by Len Lease, by the peacetime draft, Lincoln began to move toward certain steps that would allow the army, for example, if slaves came into the army camp, to take them into the camp and keep them protected from the southern slave owners. And these steps allowed him to move some of the conservative members to see, well, we did that and it didn't produce some sort of race war, because the conservatives were always afraid if you emancipated, there would be this incredible servile war in the South, so that it got them accustomed to the idea. And finally, however, the interesting thing is when he finally made the decision to emancipate the slaves, he called his cabinet together and he told them, I want to tell you what I've decided and I will listen to your comments. But I want you to know I've made this decision. I think he finally knew that if he put it up to a vote or a discussion, then it might make it harder for these people to understand that this was his decision. And the only thing he did was he accepted their thoughts on the style of it. He accepted Seward's advice that he not issue it. He was going to issue it in, in the summer of 1862, and the war was going very badly for the North. And Seward said he thought it would look like he was just desperate and that it wasn't an act of considered opinion. Why not wait for a victory to issue it? And Lincoln took that into consideration, agreed with Seward, and waited until the Battle of Antietam was fought and successfully resolved before he finally said he was going to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. So I guess in some ways what it meant was he listened to them as he was going along, but he finally had to decide for himself what he was going to do, and then just tell the cabinet in a very forceful way, this is what I'm going to do, I'd like you to think about it, but it's my decision.
1: Doris Kearns Goodwin recorded in 2005 after the publication of her book, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln.
3: For a sharply contrary view, let's listen to part of an interview with Terry Gross on January 20th, 2009.
1: Eric Foner is a professor of history at Columbia University and has written extensively about Reconstruction, Lincoln, and the history of race relations in America. His latest books are Forever Free, The Story of Emancipation and Reconstruction, and Our Lincoln, New Perspectives on Lincoln and His World. Because of Doris Kearns' Goodwin's book, "Team of Rivals." A lot has been made about how Lincoln put together this team of rivals—his his political opponents, people with different points of view—and that concept um, helped him become a great president. And well, I, I well, wonder you know, if you agree.
4: Uh, Terry, with all due respect to yeah. Doris, who's a very good historian, I don't think this really holds much water. Uh, first of all, every president did that in the 19th century. That's how you created a cabinet. You brought in the leading figures of your party the Secretary of State was supposed to be your main rival in the party. Uh, John Quincy Adams had Henry Clay, and I could name others who were rather much more ex- obscure. Second of all, Lincoln's cabinet was basically dysfunctional i don't think it's a good model for obama i hope that's not what he thought he was doing uh... it did consist of several people who thought they were better qualified to be president than lincoln and uh, some of them were ambitious to succeed lincoln in eighteen sixty four and the cabinet didn't meet very frequently lincoln basically dealt with each member individually in terms of their own departments when they did meet they frequently couldn't make decisions so it's a wonderful idea team of rivals but actually when you get into the history Um, This analogy between Lincoln and uh, Obama, it it doesn't actually hold water.
3: Well, that was pretty tough. As a rebuttal, let's listen to part of an interview with the author on November fifth, two 2005, with Linda Wertheimer.
5: Doris Kearns Goodwin joins us from member station WHYY in Philadelphia. She's on a book tour. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. I'm going to fast forward here to uh, the transition. He brought all three of his rivals into the cabinet, plus later Edwin Stanton, another brilliant man who had no very good opinion of Lincoln. Why did he do that? Why did he bring uh, his opponents in instead of reaching out for good and trusted friends as presidents usually do, or for cronies even?
2: Well, I think there were two reasons. One was the, was the positive reason. He told somebody, these are the strongest men in the country, the country is in a perilous state, I cannot deprive the country of their talents, but I think he also knew that his own fledgling Republican Party was really scattering in terms of opinions. There were radicals, there were old Whigs, there were Democrats, there were conservatives, there were Liberty Party people, and these cabinet guys represented various strands on that political spectrum, so he figured, if I can get them to somehow agree within, and if I have face-to-face time with them within, maybe I'll be able to control this coalition outside. So again, it was one of those things where he was doing the right thing, but it was also Politically very smart.
5: He ultimately convinced most of them that, in fact, he should have been president instead of them, uh, but he never convinced Salmon Chase.
2: That is for sure. Chase is one of the most ambitious men that I think I've read about in history. And throughout Lincoln's term, even as he stayed as Secretary of the Treasury, he would say terrible things about him, try to mobilize the radical community against him, and did indeed try to run against him in 1864. Then the amazing thing, however, is that there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court after Lincoln's won that second nomination, and everyone comes and suggests various people. But Lincoln said, no, I'm putting Chase on the court. And they say, how can you do that? He said such terrible things about you. I know meaner things he said about me than anyone. He said, I'd rather swallow a chair than put him on this court, but he will be the best man for the emancipated slaves, and that's what's important as chief justice. And it truly, he turned out to be that.
5: I guess if we, if we reason back from the result, the union was preserved, so this team of rivals was a success. It seems so impossible to me, given our current poisonous atmosphere among political rivals, that something like this could work. <coughs> But, of course, then the country was
2: literally torn apart. And maybe it seemed that the kind of divisions that were within the cabinet were not as extreme as they would seem today. But could you imagine if we heard various cabinet members today, as these guys did, talking about each other, unmitigated scoundrel, liar, thief. One of them wouldn't even go to the the War Department, Blair, because he hated Stanton so much. But you're probably right, because the larger country is falling apart and hundreds of thousands of people are dying. This might have seemed mild. So the, the team of rivals worked, you think? It absolutely worked. I mean, interestingly, each one of them did become historically very good at their jobs. Secretary of State, it was said that Seward helped us to avoid war with England. Secretary of Treasury Chase kept the North afloat when the South had much more trouble keeping its bond and its economics understructure going. The attorney general did a very good job. Stanton is considered one of the great war secretaries of all time. Now, the fact that they couldn't get along with each other, as long as they could get along with Lincoln, who made sure to spend as much special time with each of them so they wouldn't feel jealous, then it absolutely worked.
5: Now, I wanted to ask you about the writing of this book. Three years ago, when the Weekly Standard wrote a story about your book about the Kennedys and the Fitzgeralds, which included the revelation that portions of the text came directly from the work of another scholar, Lynn McTaggart. You settled that case with her years before that, but then eventually you just withdrew the book. And then you had the whole storm of public opinion to deal with, which I gather cost you something.
2: Well, sure, and you you accept that that's going to be a part of the price you pay for being a public figure. But I acknowledged the error at the time. The book was corrected in exactly the form that the author asked me to do it. But then when it came to the public attention again three years ago, there was some criticism about the form of correction, so I decided to just withdraw the book until I could rethink whether or not it needed another edition or not. But the interesting thing is, you know, when you go through something like that, the best thing you can do is what I'd like to think Lincoln did time and again. You acknowledge that you made a mistake. You make sure that you work as hard as I have on this book to make sure that everything is checked and double-checked, and I'm absolutely certain it is. And you get through it. You spent 10 years on this book on Lincoln, and you indicate that uh, obviously
5: he was a skillful politician, but, but he was eloquent. He made brilliant speeches. He told folksy stories. He was funny. He was a reading man, but he was obviously a talking man.
2: Was he ever a talking man? I don't think I had fully absorbed how critical his gift for storytelling was in his political rise, and his stories were hilarious. You want to tell one? Lincoln used to tell the story of the Revolutionary War hero, Ethan Allen, going over to Britain after the war was won, and the British people were still smarting over their loss, so they decided to humiliate him by putting a picture of General George Washington in the outhouse where he would have to see it. He went in the outhouse, and he came out smiling, and they said, well, didn't you see George Washington there? Yes, he said. Well, what did you think? Well, he said, I think there's nothing to make an Englishman sh- Faster than the sight of General George Washington. Perfect place for him. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming in. Oh, I appreciate it, Linda, very much myself.
3: For another interesting viewpoint, let's listen to an interview on August 20th, 2008.
6: From NPR News, this is Day to Day. Team of Rivals, that's the title of a biography of Abraham Lincoln, written by the historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. President-elect Barack Obama has read the book, and he's said to be taking lessons from it, from the way Lincoln gathered up his political rivals and installed them in his cabinet. The rest of the title to Goodwin's book is The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Well, would it be political genius for Barack Obama to install his own team of rivals? Civil War historian Matthew Pinsker teaches at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania.
7: There's always trade-offs in Washington, and that's the first thing Lincoln learned. I imagine President-elect Obama knows this, but when you reach out to rivals, you aggravate your old friends. President Lincoln's friends were upset, and they complained about it pretty bitterly. Uh, and then, of course, after the war was over, when things worked out and the president had been martyred, you know, all of that was forgotten. But that's why sometimes we tend to forget it, because it worked out in the end.
6: And let's talk about the rivals themselves once they were in the cabinet. You wrote about this uh, this week in The in the Los Angeles Times in an op-ed, and you noted that two years into Lincoln's administration, there was a full-blown crisis in Lincoln's cabinet. What was that about?
7: Well, we reached this point in the middle of the war. It's December 1862. When Lincoln actually says to one of his closest friends, We are now on the brink of destruction. And he was talking about a cabinet crisis that was the result of this friction between these rivals. There was backbiting and intrigue, and it was ugly. Uh, Lincoln survived it, and that's why we tend to forget how ugly it was. But, you know, in the first two years of the conflict, the president is really struggling to manage these bulky rivals.
6: And they're unable to, what, subsume their own egos to that of the president's?
7: You know, in retrospect, I think uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, you know, has a lot of wisdom when she says Lincoln had great personal strength to reach out to his rivals. But at the time, it was considered tremendous weakness. And therefore, people in Washington at the beginning of the administration thought he was weak, and they tried to take advantage of it.
6: So we're talking about Team of Rivals. This is uh, the title of Doris Kearns Goodwin's book. Do you think that she glosses over the problems that were in his cabinet?
7: Put it this way. You know, she's not trying to write a transition manual. She was writing a story that incorporates, you know, four years. I I think she's perfectly aware that things went badly for the first couple of years. But maybe some of the people who have read the book or are trying to use that term now are forgetting that.
6: Well, one of the people who read the book is President-elect Barack Obama, What do you think he should do, given Lincoln's history and the problems he had with his cabinet?
7: If you really want to know what it felt like to be Lincoln, I actually think you need to read the people around him. Uh, And, you know, they're all available now pretty easily. But the one that's the best that really conveys what it was like is a diary by a man named John Hay, who was Lincoln's closest aide in the White House. Uh, And if you want to know what it felt like to be Lincoln at that time, I think that's the closest we're ever going to get.
6: John Hay being, I guess... Lincoln's Rahm Emanuel?
7: (laughs) In those days, they only had two White House aides. And so he was the second one. uh, But he kept the most vivid diary. So he wasn't quite a Rahm Emanuel, but he was a very important figure. Later became well known as the Secretary of State himself.
6: Mm -hmm. Well, so what does it say, though, about this idea of of assembling a team of rivals, perhaps not as good idea as it to be?
7: Well, first of all, I'm a historian, so I don't think anything that happened in the past is a predictor of the future. But second of all, I do think that rivals represent trade-offs. You know, reaching out to rivals is a good thing, but there are costs associated with it, and they're real, and people need to think about those.
6: Matthew Pinsker teaches Civil War history at Dickinson College. He's the author of the book, Lincoln's Sanctuary, Abraham Lincoln, and the Soldier's Home.
3: thank Bob and Rick Harmon for their assistance tonight. To get discussion started, did you agree with Dr. Froner or with Dr. Pinksker? Was the Lincoln strategy really unique? How successful do you think it was? And was it successful enough for a new president to follow? Okay, let's open it up for
0: discussion.